Uh, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Allison Pinches, and I'm the Director of Discipleship here at Courtright. Would you join me as we get started this morning? are here and here among us. I thank you that you are God who longs to be known by your people. And I thank you that you and your Holy Spirit are in the work of known. And so we pray that you would do that good work among us this morning. God, would you open our eyes to see and our ears to hear whatever this morning. And we pray that you would help us to know your truth. I pray that anything that I say that is not of you would fall away of your truth. Would you allow that to deeply within us? For we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. I'm just going to do a little mic check here. Okay. I'll clip it on the back. Thank you. You have to think about your wardrobe when you're preaching to make sure that it works with the mic. Okay. So our passage for... Nope. There we go. I think we're good. Okay, I I told you all we were camping here in the gym, right? That's what I said the first week. So we just ride with uh, the little bumps that we have uh, in this new space. So our passage for today picks up right where we left off last week, in the middle of a story. If this was an episode of your favorite show, you might be hearing the following. Last week on Genesis... And the screen would flash with images of a serpent, a woman and a man, a close-up of their mouths taking a bite, and then a wide angle of them hiding in the garden as God looks for them. (laughs) Or in other words, last week we heard about how the serpent cast doubt on the goodness of God and implied that God was holding out on them. Ultimately, the woman and the man's distrust of God and their desire to be independent led them to choose away from God. And for the first time, they experienced evil. We paused our story last week right after God had come to find the man and the woman and ask them about what happened. And then we saw how quickly everything was unraveling. Gerhard von Rad describes this as the avalanche of sin. Within a few lines, as the words tumble on the page, we see what was just created and pronounced as good, distorted and marred. Instead of right relationships between humans and one another, true relationship with God, the ability to see ourselves rightly, and the intended way of relating with creation, we see blame, shame, fear, and the tearing apart of all those relationships. We see creatures not living according to their true created nature, but trying to grasp for the place of creator. And within a few lines on the page, the world is undone. After I read our text for this morning, I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord. And I'm going to invite you to respond with, thanks be to God. And it is my hope that by the end of our morning, we will better know why we can truly say, thanks be to God for this passage. This is Genesis 3, starting at verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you among all animals, and among all wild creatures. Upon your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pangs in childbearing. 
In pain you shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to the man he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree about which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made garments of skins for the man and for his wife and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, See, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim with a sword flaming and turning to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, Alex and Justin got to speak on the beauty and majesty of creation, and I get punishment. When Jordan and I had only been married about five weeks, we were driving up to the cottage one day when we came up with what we were sure would be the next best-selling marriage concept. We started planning the book tour and the appearance on Oprah and congratulating ourselves for figuring out this profound concept a mere weeks into our marriage. So Jordan's going to come up and he's going to help demonstrate this with me. (laughs) This 100% guaranteed marriage tool is called punishment goggles. Here's the idea. Basically, if one of you does or says something decidedly wrong, you have to wear goggles, the punishment goggles. Simply locate the goggles, place over your face, and resume conversation. This has two immediate and guaranteed effects. First of all, it is very difficult to stay mad at someone who is wearing goggles. The second thing is, if you are upset, it is hard to take yourself too seriously and stay mad while wearing the goggles. The results are almost immediate and long-lasting. We encourage you, do try this at home. (laughs) Thank you. Jordan will be available to demonstrate after and sign copies of our book after the service. We're thinking of expanding to a new family line of products as well. A pair of these punishment goggles might have done wonders for Cain and Abel, but that's getting a little ahead of our story. So a couple years after we invented punishment goggles, Jordan and I moved into an intentional community house in Toronto with some friends. Here is our attempt at an awkward family photo. So we live with Stacy and Steve and their two-year-old son, Emmanuel, and our friend, Dave. During our year together in the house, two-year-old Emmanuel was in the stage of why. Everything was, why, why, why? And I remember Stacy patiently trying to explain why about whatever it was he was asking about, only to be hit with another why, which required a new layer of explanation. One day, Stacy came home and told me, you know, it doesn't matter what he's asking about, whatever it is, eventually, if he keeps asking why enough times, I find myself saying, Because at the fall, Adam and Eve chose independence from God. 
It all comes back to Genesis. <laughs> this morning, I think we will find that Stacy is right. It all comes back to Genesis. Or as Daryl Johnson puts it, this is the story that makes sense of all our stories. I don't need to tell you this morning that our world is a mess. I thought about showing you video clips of the ways that we have polluted our world or newspaper headlines about people killing each other over race or greed or about the prevalence of violence against women around the world or about how people in our own country don't have access to clean water. How can that be? But I don't have to go to Africa to show you. I don't have to go to Europe. I don't have to go across this country. I don't actually even need to leave this room. Because right here, in this room, we live, we know, we are aware of, we experience the consequences of the fall. In this room, we know the pain of broken relationships. In this room, we know of divorce, of families ripped apart, of losing children, of mothers who couldn't mother us, of fathers who weren't there, of infertility, of miscarriage, of cancer, of depression, anxiety, addictions to alcohol, the rewiring of our minds from pornography, of unemployment, not enough food, and of feeling alone. This story helps us make sense of all that. And most importantly, this story says it's not supposed to be that way. We don't know why the snake tempted Eve. We don't know what had prompted it to choose away from its created snakely role or purpose to live against its creator. But in this story, the serpent represents the spiritual forces of evil, of all that would oppose God. The text says that the snake is cursed. A careful reading will show that the woman and the man are not actually cursed. The only things cursed in the text are the snake and the ground. The snake is cursed to slide on its belly and eat dust, a lowly position, no doubt. From what is said to the snake, we learn that there will be enmity between the snake and the woman. Enmity is being actively opposed or hostile. We see here that there will be trouble between the forces of evil and people. All of the issues I just mentioned are because sin has entered the world and we have an enemy. The one who opposes us and strikes our heel. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. There is a long road ahead of suffering. Let's take a closer look at the suffering described here for the woman and the man. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pangs in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. There's a few things to note here. I will greatly increase. This tells us that all pain is not inherently tied to evil. Some pain is actually for our own good. The pain that tells us to move our hand off of the hot stove is serving a purpose. So the world that God created was not void of all pain, but it all changes after the fall. Secondly, I will greatly increase your pangs in childbearing. 
The word here for pangs means labor, hardship, toil, and sorrow. And the word translated as childbearing is more accurately conception and pregnancy. I will greatly increase your sorrow in conceiving, in being pregnant, in giving birth, in bringing forth children. I think from these words and from the thrust of the meaning in this passage, it's saying that all desire, all longing to bring forth children, whether that's the pain of not having them and wanting them, the challenges of physically bringing them forth into the world, or the heartache of bringing forth children into adulthood, all these things are not supposed to be this hard. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. The Hebrew word for desire here is used only two other times in the Old Testament, and the next use is just in the very next chapter. And it just so happens that here again we have desire paired with rule. In chapter 4, God warns Cain, sin is lurking at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule it. So here, desire does imply a desire to be with and longing for another, but this desire also implies longing to control the other. What God says to the woman tells us that there will now be pain and power struggle in relationships, a desire to control. Daryl Johnson says, The relationship between the man and the woman was originally one of trust, care, attentiveness, servanthood, and mutuality. Now it is marked by competition and the desire to dominate. And to the man he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree about which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Likewise for the man, things just got a lot harder. The word here, toil, is the same word spoken to the woman. Labor, hardship, toil, sorrow. He was already called to work the ground, but now it's excruciating work with less return. We get one example of this from the author of Ecclesiastes. And perhaps some of you in difficult moments, maybe facing retirement, have shared some of these thoughts. So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. Yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This, too, is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This, too, is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days their work is grief and pain. Even at night their minds do not rest. This, too, is meaningless. In Genesis 1, when God creates humans, male and female, in his image, he says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Those instructions, that purpose, has just gotten much more difficult. The job of surviving, of bringing forth life in children and life in the earth, sustenance to sustain life, it's all gotten way harder. As Gerald Johnson says, God has said, be fruitful and multiply, but now creation groans to be fruitful and creation groans to multiply. 
both the avalanche of sin we heard about last week and what is described here in terms of as the consequences of living with sin in a broken world show us that all layers of relationship between us and God, us and ourselves, us and one another, and us and creation, all these relationships at all those levels have now been distorted and marred. They all now experience evil or ways of choosing against how God intended. Most of our suffering today can trace its roots to brokenness in one or more of these relationships. There's something really key to understanding this passage. What is outlined here for the man and the woman is not a prescription of what ought to be, but a description of what life is like now that sin has entered the world. In her new book, Amanda Benkhuizen writes that what God is doing here is predicting the distortions of male-female relationships. Estelle says it's a description of how sin has marred and distorted male-female relationships. And Tremper Longman III, how's that for a name, by the way? Tremper Longman III says, We must bear in mind that these punishments are descriptive and not prescriptive. The difference is significant in two ways, he says. First, we should not live believing that relationships and work are doomed to abject failure. Second, knowing that the punishments are descriptive and not prescriptive means that we can work hard against them without sinning against God. For instance, Longman goes on to say, while it is true that the punishment against women includes the man ruling over her, we do not have to submit to the idea that men will dominate women, but we can actively work against the oppression of women, particularly through education and laws protecting women's rights. Description versus prescription. Describing what is versus saying what now should be. That's the difference here. And even in how this passage has been in, passage has been interpreted in the past, it has actually lived out the warning that is spelled in these lines. The dangerous interpretation of the passage has been used to oppress women and restrict the freedom and ability of women to be full people. Thus, the interpretation of this warning has sometimes become the fulfillment of the very thing it warns of. That so goes against the trajectory of Genesis and the heart of the gospel. Okay, so from all that we have learned so far, we have two takeaways to start with. The first one is, it's not supposed to be like this. Most of the suffering we endure in this life was not supposed to be this way. Whether it's the indirect or direct consequences of sin in the world or in our lives, brokenness in all these levels of relationships, it isn't how it was intended to be. And somehow knowing that actually helps. It may change nothing about our situation and circumstances, but knowing that this is not what God intended brings comfort. We sometimes say, how could God do this to me? But this isn't how God set things up from the beginning. This gives us a new lens on suffering. For most of our suffering, we can remember this is not what our loving creator had in mind. This is the consequence of living in a world where sin is present. This is what life after death entering the world looks like. When Jordan was unemployed for a long time and struggling to find a job, it felt like we were hitting our heads against a wall and couldn't break through. It was not, I don't think, intended to be that hard. Jordan and I have also struggled through a miscarriage and years of infertility, and it really does help to see that it's not supposed to be like this. This is not what God intended. 
It doesn't change our situation. But we cling to knowing this is not what we, he designed or how things ought to be. And it actually helps to know that he is angry on our behalf. That he is grieved at the way things are. Now that is not to say that he is apart from us in our suffering. And he doesn't waste our suffering. He uses it. So in, He's so incredibly present to us in our suffering. He uses it to draw us back to him again and again. Paul reminds us in Romans that God uses all things for the good of those who love him. God uses even what was not intended for good. He redeems our suffering. But knowing that it's not supposed to be this way really is good news. It means that most of our pain and our turmoil is not meant to be and ultimately will not be. This leads us to the second important takeaway. We can work against the consequences of the fall. As Longman says, because these consequences are descriptive, pardon me, and not prescriptive, we can work against them. I would add that much of the rest of the witness of scripture is a call to join with God in working against the consequences of the fall and seeing God's intention for relationships with God, with one another, with ourselves, and with the earth be restored. Friends, we don't aim for what's described in chapter 3. We aim for chapter 2. We aim for both men and women reflecting God's image. We aim to be mighty rescuers to one another. We aim for peace and right relatedness with creation, with God, with one another, and with ourselves. We set our sights on chapter 2, and that is what we aim for. We don't aim for things that are the consequences of a world with sin. We aim for what God intended and for how he created and designed us all along. And when, by the grace of God, we are victorious, not living according to chapter 3, but living like he intended in chapter 2, slowly but surely, what happened at the fall is being reversed. And God's way of doing things, his kingdom, is being restored. All that was lost in this chapter is being made right again, and we can be part of that. Chapter 3 is our present reality. But it doesn't have to be our forever reality. And it will not be our forever reality. Praise God. And there's more. (laughs) And the Lord God made garments of skin for the man and for his wife and clothed them. What on first glance may seem strange or simply practical is a profound act of grace and an intimate demonstration of love. You may remember that the man and woman made clothes for themselves from leaves when they realized that they were naked and they were ashamed. Here we again see how death has entered the scene, this time for an animal, and how in this case God used something from the death to cover the shame of the man and the woman. It speaks profoundly of his generosity and tenderness. Instead of insufficient leaves, he generously covers their shame for them with warm garments that will last. Here, I know you need this now. God is still the better provider. Okay, our friends with English degrees here might be noticing some foreshadowing in this death to cover shame. This looks ahead to the sacrificial system of the temple and ultimately to Jesus. We started off remembering the avalanche of sin from our story last week in the first part of chapter 3. 
But Daryl Johnson tells us grace outruns the avalanche. All through this tragic story, there is grace. Grace that the woman can still bring forth life and hence is named Eve, which means living, for she will be the mother of all living. Grace that the ground will still produce food to eat. Grace that the consequences of sin will keep the man and woman in relationship with one another. Grace in garments. And finally, grace in protection. Verse 22. Then the Lord God said, See, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a sword, flaming and turning, to guard the way to the tree of life. I have to admit that this has often seemed kind of harsh. So we've just had all these painful consequences, and now he drives them from the garden and then goes for this extra dramatic finish of putting an angel with a spinning sword of flames to keep them out. It's like, okay, we get it, but I'm not sure we do, or at least I didn't. God says, see, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Author and activist Lisa Sharon Harper, in her book, The Very Good Gospel, helps us understand this better. She writes, knowledge, as we think of it in Western culture, is located in the mind. To know something is to understand it intellectually. In the Hebrew culture, however, knowledge was experiential. It was kinetic. In addition, the Hebrew word that is used here, da'as, can be translated as awareness. The original readers would likely have understood the tree of the knowledge of good and evil to be a tree that offered the awareness of both good and evil through experience. The garden is overflowing with goodness. The humans have had no experience of evil. The only possibility for them to have that experience exists in interaction with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Knowledge as awareness and experience. Adam and Eve don't just know about good and evil now. They are aware of and are experiencing both good and evil. But why would it be so bad for them to now eat from the tree of life? It wasn't forbidden before. Because to eat from the tree of life while they know evil, while they are aware of and experiencing evil, would mean that this life would go on forever. And that would be awful. God doesn't want them to live forever like this. Can you imagine eating from the tree that would make them keep on living, living with shame, living with fear, with blame, hiding from God? That would be terrible. And they can't really be trusted to not eat from the tree. Their track record with forbidden fruit is not so good. And so God puts into place measures for their protection so that this new life of knowing and experiencing good and evil does not get locked in forever. This is protection. This is love. This is hope. We skipped over the most hopeful, the most key part of this text. And it's actually part of what was said to the snake. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Yes, suffering. Yes, hostility. Yes, opposition between the snake and the woman and their offspring. But he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. As offspring of the woman, we experience this enmity, this opposition. But here, 
right after the destruction in the world starts, there is a declaration of its end. He will strike your head. The offspring of the woman will strike the head of the snake. This painting gives us a bit of a clue. Not sure if you can see it at the bottom, but she's stepping. There's a snake that wraps around Eve's leg, and Mary is stepping on the head of the snake. Remember that there would be sorrow in conceiving, in pregnancy, and bringing forth children into the world. Well, the Holy Spirit restores this when Mary conceives and gives birth to a son. And this conception is not struggled for, but freely given. And the offspring of the woman, Jesus, is the one who will strike the head of the serpent. Oh yes, evil will strike his heel. It will look like it's game over. Jesus will even die when the serpent strikes his heel. But in death, he delivers the crushing final blow and the serpent's head is crushed. Evil is defeated. Paul is no doubt remembering the tree of knowledge of good and evil when he writes to the church in Rome, I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Theologians love to make up fancy words to sound smart, and so the fancy word for this phrase to the snake in Genesis is protevangelium. I can thank our own smart theologian, Justin, for that one. But this word is really a Greek word made up of two words, protos, meaning first, and evangelion, meaning good news or gospel. And I can thank the theologian Wikipedia for that definition. So protevangelium. The first good news. A mere few verses after the most disastrous decision humans can make, we hear that there is good news. There is one who will come and make it all right again. It's not good news if we don't need a savior. And the more aware we are of our need for God, the better the news. The sweeter the sound of what Jesus brings and who he is. When Jesus died on the cross, the gospel writers tell us that the curtain in the temple was torn. The curtain in the temple is what separated people from the part of the temple called the Holy of Holies. This is the part of the temple where the presence of God dwelt. And people were separated from the presence of God. No one could go in there except one priest once a year. So at the moment, the exact instant that Jesus died... The curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This symbolized the access and freedom we now have to God. Another way to put this is the angel with the flaming sword in the garden guarding the tree. He was told to go home. The way to the tree of life was made clear. Access to the tree of life is given. And you know what we would see if we peeked around the corner in the garden just to get a look at the tree? It's a person, of course. It's Jesus. He is the tree of life. I am the way and the truth and the life. The one who feeds on me will live because of me. We don't have to wait anymore. We get to live with access to the tree. The way is not guarded anymore. The curtain is torn. When we come to Jesus, we get to eat the tree of life. Not just to live forever, not this life going on like this. No, that's what he was avoiding. But life restored. Life as it was meant to be. Enjoyed now and forever.
A few things for us to consider as we close. Maybe you see that you are living according to the fallen ways of the world, living out the consequences of sin in the world, and continually choosing independence from God. You can step out of that. We don't have to live like that anymore. Or maybe you're in a dark season, one of the darkest you've ever had. And maybe you need to know that even in this darkness, God is present and offers hope, offers nurture, protection, provision, and offers himself. Maybe for you it's the reminder that the particular ordeal you're facing, it's not supposed to be this way. This is not what God intended for us, and there is comfort in that. Or maybe you're sensing an invitation to join in the work of God seeing the restoration of life and relationships as he intended. Maybe you want to commit to seeing that way of life restored in your own life and in the lives of those around you and of those particularly oppressed by injustice. Maybe it's having a lonely neighbor for a weekly meal or connecting with a program that supports those who are marginalized in our city or forgiving someone or working for a justice issue that's close to your heart. Oscar Romero writes this, So it is for us. We may never see end results, and what we may do in the end may be very incomplete. Still, we minister. Still, we love. Hoping for the kingdom which is beyond our vision. Still, we plant and water the seeds which may not be our own, but in truth belong to future generations. Still we find meaning in our lives as incomplete as they may actually be because we participate in something much larger than ourselves. And in this hope, we prophesy of the kingdom of God. We prophesy of a future that is not our own. Maybe you've never made a decision about any of these. Maybe you want to know more about Jesus and what it would mean to have him in your life. You hear that word about Jesus bringing, being the tree of life and restoring things in your life to the way they were meant to be, and you think you might want that. If that's true for you, there are people here that would love to talk with you and pray with you after the service. They'll meet you here right here by the stage, and if you have a sense of that nudge or prompting, I would really encourage you to let someone know, and they would help, love to help you ask God some more about that. In closing, let's hang on to these words together from John. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Let's pray. God, we praise you that you have overcome the world. We don't even pretend to understand all of what that means. But I pray that you would, uh, even this morning, be drawing us more fully into the life that you offer. Would you remove the things that hold us back, uh, the things that we fall into that are in opposition to you and the way that you intended things to be. And we pray that we would know, we would, in your name, Jesus. Amen.